Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. With the third pick in the 2019 NBA Draft, the New York Knicks select R.J. Barrett. What up, listeners? It's your boy, Prez, a.k.a. at underscore Presidente on Twitter, a.k.a. voiceover P. If you don't know what that means, then you got to stay tuned to see what exclusive content is going to drop from the Strickland soon this week. Perhaps before you get this podcast, perhaps after. We will see. I am here with a very illustrious guest, one who has been on Pod Strickland before, one who has even dabbled in our chaotic mock draft pods, stepping into the uh, the arena as a non-Knicks fan, which is rare and bold and possibly even dangerous. And he is here to help me walk through the 2020 NBA draft. It seems like a long time ago, but it's not. It's relatively recent. And some of the players are beginning to come into their own. Some of them continue to flounder. My good takes are few and far between. My bad takes from that draft are very, very visible. And I will not delete those tweets because I learned from them. So, uh, yeah, I want to welcome CJ to the pod. Uh, CJ, what's your Twitter handle? I keep it nice and easy. It's just at CJ Marchesani. At CJ Marchesani. If you're not following... This man, please follow him. He has uh, all types of goodness that he posts throughout the year, whether it's draft tools or models developed by him or statistics developed by him or good stuff he's sharing that other people post or Google Sheet projects of one kind or another. Um, There's a lot I've learned from him. So uh, I'm really happy to have him with us today. CJ, how you doing? I'm doing great. Always happy to be a part of the... uh the Strickland stuff that you guys are doing, and I'm happy to be on. Looking forward to it. The Strickland Cinematic Universe. You know this podcast is a big deal because at time of recording, we're actually doing this as the Knicks-Nets game is kicking off. And the reason I decided to do that is for a couple of the last Knicks games, both wins and losses, I've actually not watched them live, and it has helped my stress very very significantly so i'm not going to be ashamed about putting my mental health first every now and then and talking about something i love which is draft stuff and hopefully uh by the time we wrap this up you know i'm sure kd will have like 38 and hopefully the nets still have a a nice 10 point loss or something like that so um uh that's that's where we're at here today on this fine tuesday well we know for sure that uh kemba's not getting any minutes right that that we do um that we do it's uh 
that was that I I don't I think that caught most of us by surprise. Um, not because it's not warranted or anything, but just because we're all traumatized from the Alfred Payton experience where Tibbs decided to stick with a questionable situation for uh much longer than a month and a half, which is what he gave Kemba. Um, but you know, in some way, actually, that's a great segue. I'm glad you brought that up because one of the reasons. Uh, that I feel like is being under-discussed for Kemba being removed from the rotation. You know, in addition to him, like, being a step slow and, you know, it's not a good fit on the court as much as we thought it was um, beyond him being a good shooter. But one reason that I think is under-discussed is the emergent play of uh, not only Alec Burks, but 2020 draft pick, draft steal, Emmanuel Quickly. Um, So usually for these pods... We start with talking about like what, uh, you know, where where folks were at on draft Twitter and just in general, like on ESPN and stuff like that. So before I jump into uh, Emmanuel quickly discussions, which is as good a place as any to start, um, I want to talk a little bit about that. So, you know, if we go back to the 2020, the beginning of the 2020 draft cycle, I remember doing a a preview of it and the final I mean this happens every year to some degree but I feel like 2020 more so than other years if you compared people's like preseason top 10s or whatever and then to right before the draft it was just wildly different um am I am I remembering that yeah I think that's probably pretty fair and a lot of the reason behind it is because it felt like the draft cycle took eight years off of my life. And I think when you give anybody that much time to look at something, stuff just jumps all over the place. That was the, like the first pandemic cycle, right? Yeah. It was brutal. Yeah. Yeah. That was, that was nuts. So that coincided with, um, this cycle. I remember because this was right before the straight, like I was still doing stuff for posting and toasting because I remember, um, we had, we had planned our draft stuff, to essentially kick off the website, which was pretty cool. And I, you know, I was helping with the previews and all that as our main draft guy at the time. And I wrote as like a farewell gift to uh, posting and toasting since it was pretty much my last piece there before I decided to commit to the Strickland, take my talents to the Strickland beach. Um, I wrote like a bazillion words on the mellow. It was crazy. It was like, I don't even know how many thousand. It was like, I haven't written anything that long since. It was like a million clips. I basically just walked through two different games, one bad one, one good one. Both of them, weirdly, where he got triple doubles anyway. <laughs> but um, such was the Lamelo NBL experience. So yeah, it was a long cycle. And, the, you know, it, we were all like entering the pandemic and... It you know we draft Twitter had had a couple of years to kind of get its footing, and some people were finally getting hired to teams. So there was a bit of um, you know, I feel like we knew a little bit more about what we were talking about, and felt more confident as armchair enthusiasts like agreeing with or disagreeing with what we saw on ESPN and all that stuff. So it it was a weird time. Yeah, absolutely. I think that was my first, like, I have done a couple draft cycles before that, but that was my first one that I did, like, full-time with Twitter, you know, like, me, mm-hmm. you, every, the whole 
Twitter group all together. And I think I kind of came into my own, like, with this draft class. So I always have a little bit of a special spot for it. But by the end of it, I was just so done with it because I was so excited <laughs> for the next class. I, because last year's class was just so cool, in my opinion, mm-hmm. anyway. And I had started, like, digging into them in the last month leading up to the draft because I'd been looking at these guys for the better part of 17, 18 months. And at the end of it, I just needed to watch other basketball players. Yeah, we were all going a little nuts there at the end. Um, I don't blame you. So, yeah, just rewinding to before the pandemic, when the draft cycle first started, you know, you had, like, James Wiseman, especially among mainstream outlets. You know, he was so highly touted. And he remained there for the most part among mainstream outlets, less so on draft Twitter. Um, and, you know, he got injured after a couple of games at Memphis, which was, you know, probably a reason why he, his mystique carried on rather than him getting nitpicked to death. Like a lot of these guys did for better or worse. So he was kind of there. I don't really remember where Ant-Man started. I know he was like a big deal, but I don't think he was, quite the level of Wiseman at the time. I think, if I'm remembering correctly, the same three, and I could definitely not be remembering correctly, but I think that the same three that ended up top three mm-hmm. started the year on top three for ESPN. At least Wiseman and Ant. Yeah. I think Wiseman and Ant were the top two coming into the year for ESPN. Yeah. Wiseman and Ant. And LaMelo, there was, I remember like Mike Schmitz for ESPN and other people writing about, um, because before he was in the NBL, he had that weird stint in um, in Lithuania and then back on the States at Spire Academy. And that was just like, we as people who don't, you know, we weren't, most of us at least, professional scouts or anything. Those were kind of hard reference points. We didn't really know. I didn't really know what to do with that. So I, I was kind of just waiting for the NBL. And even with the NBL, I didn't really know what to do with that either. I feel like for a lot of people who now care about the draft, this was our f- first real exposure to a non, non-Euro, non-NCAA pathway. Like guys had done that stuff before, like Brandon Jennings or whoever. Um, but there was, this was the first time like a, a big-time player had gone to this burgeoning league I, I don't know who was the the biggest NBL player before him. I mean, I know Joe Ingles, but like he he that was different. He wasn't coming in the NBL as like a seventeen year old on his way to the NBA or anything. Yeah, Lamelo and to a lesser extent R.J. Hampton. I think they they kind of legitimized the NBL path. They were kind of the the blazers of that path that opened it up as an option, and now. Nobody really thinks twice about a guy in the NBL. You're seeing Josh Giddy made the jump this year. It's kind of looked at as a, I, I don't know, it, definitely not the second best league in the in the world or anything like that, but a really, really good spot for development and creativity. And I don't know if it's as far along in the public perception as a development um, league if LaMelo and RJ didn't both go there and then have the success that they did in the league uh, as rookies. Yeah, totally. Um, you know, like among Hoopers, like there's been NBA players and college players going there for a while, but you're right. Like that was definitely a profile booster and it's not a not an accident that um you hear more about it among the casuals as they say uh than you did back then. So that was like 
that was going on. And then you had, you know, there were a couple of other big name guys that were big names for different reasons. But really, after that three, um, you know, Cole, Cole Anthony was like the prodigy coming in, even though he was a little older. And in Russia, like we'll get we'll get to him because he's his career arc from high school to college to now Orlando is probably like the most fascinating of anybody in this class to me. But like he was the guy, right? The household name, like the dunks, the shooting, whether you were a casual who just saw his YouTube and knew his dad or a nerd who like knew that he put up historic shooting numbers and like he had the stats to go with the mixtapes and all that stuff. Like I feel like most people were on board the, um, the cold wagon before injuries and weird UNC shenanigans kind of took hold. So he was in the mix. Um, Okongu played with LaMelo in high school, although less people knew about him than they did his brothers, of course. Um, Toppin quickly established himself at Dayton just by running roughshod through all of college basketball. Um, I'm trying to think if there was anybody else who was like, you know, very much talked about beforehand. And I don't really know if there was. No, um, I, I really think it was a lot of it like popping onto the scene kind of thing. I'm running through, I think Precious had a little bit of buzz, but it was pretty apparent early on that he wasn't going to be that guy up at the top. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that Okoro had a little bit of like draft darling buzz early. Mm-hmm. He was the guy that like, you knew you were from draft Twitter if you liked Isaac Okoro in the first month or two of the season. But he ended up, uh, I think, outplaying even that early buzz his freshman year of college and kind of vaulted himself up at the top 10 discussions as it went on. But I don't think that there were any other high-profile names before, like, coming into the year. I think you touched on most of them. Yeah, Okoro was one of those dudes who, like, if you follow high school basketball, you might not think he's the next, you know, game-changing franchise player, but you knew like he was a winner and his teams won a lot both in the state and nationally. And, and he was notable for that. Um, you know, there's always a guy, a few guys like that, but like when he stacked on his, his good play at Auburn on top of his high school winning, I think he began to turn some hands, heads a little bit. Um, so yeah, now that's like, that's a good place as any, I, I'm going to press pause on those top 10 dudes and go back to, uh well actually let's just you know what we can just talk about Kentucky. Uh we can talk about quickly and we can talk about Maxi. Um Maxi was you know a, a draft twitter darling. He was he was awesome at Kentucky despite not shooting super well from 3 uh, and doing being asked to do stuff that more resemble like he was running off all types of screens. It was weird Kentucky stuff and at this point everybody among the, the draft fans were suspicious you know like which kentucky player is going to be better in the league than he is in college and maxi seemed like as good a choice as any given that he was a ball handler dude in high school and now coach coach cal had him running off all these screens and i remember having a joking tweet about like maybe quickly is going to get the boost even though i wasn't that high on quickly i think i ended up having him 25th which is where he had picked but um yeah it was like, like that's I would say regarding Maxi, I'd say that's one of the one of the dudes that draft Twitter probably nailed 
Um, he's just, he just like, like now he's having a breakout. He's getting starters minutes. Thanks to Ben Simmons. The shot has finally coming around after shooting poorly for most of high school, most of college and most of his rookie year. So that's really cool to see. Um, but it's not like his shot looked busted. So that was one of those, like, when is it going to happen kind of things where people started, I started sweating, but I guess it came around and then quickly was like, I, the, the, the first time I got intrigued about him was when PD was on one of our pods and he told us that quickly was like one of those psycho dudes who had to get like locked out of the gym. And you know, that's the sort of shit that there's no, I, there's no way I would know that. Right. Yeah, yeah. But for like someone writing about that or someone telling me and I was like, Oh, so he shoots like a zillion percent from the free throw line. And also like has to be locked out of the gym. That seems like a decent, a decent bet. Um, but before we get to quickly back to Maxi, I I forget exactly where you let me pull up your I have my board up. You have it? Okay. Where were you on Maxi and Quickly? So I I was low on both of them compared to draft Twitter. I like Maxi a lot. I had a few mini question marks about how much of the offensive load he could efficiently carry at mm-hmm. the NBA level. And if he couldn't carry it efficiently, um, what his value proposition was essentially. I, I had him lottery. I had him fourteen. Uh, it's not. It's not like I hated him. I, I liked him. No, as a player. that was pretty high. Yeah. Yeah, but I, there were some draft Twitter guys that ended up with him top ten, and I never quite got there. I do think he's an awesome case study, like you mentioned, the shot getting there eventually. But his around the rim and you know stretch out to ten foot floater touch even at the college level, was just like uncharted, godlike. And I think there is something to be said for guys whose shots mechanically look all right. I still think he can get a little more arc on his ball. Same. uh, Even now. (laughs) But mechanically, there's nothing wrong with it other than it's a little line drivey. But there's something to be said about a guy that just has that natural touch, probably going to finish out uh, or figure out the shooting part. So maybe I wasn't low on him. Um, I always compared to draft Twitter. I think it was a little low, but compared to mainstream, I was probably a little high. Um, but I, I I do like his development, and he has handled more of an on-ball role more efficiently than, uh, this early than I thought he would. Quickly, though, I don't – I liked quickly. And I remember in the draft <laughs> year – like, this is going to sound stupid, but I remember ranking everybody and, like, liking quickly as a player. And I ranked him 35, and I didn't think that that was, like, an insult. You know, like, I thought, like, sure. I'm, I'm, this is, like, a second-round guy that I'm pretty high on. I think he's an NBA player. I think he's top 40. And he ended up 35 on my final board. And obviously, he has wildly outplayed that. And, again, just the the shooting was always going to be there, but the amount that he's been able to hang defensively, even if he's not, you know, world's best defender, he doesn't get – he's not the worst defender on the floor every time he steps on it, As at least for me, if you watch the Knicks more than I do. But I think that has been the impressive part, and that has allowed his offense to shine through that you don't have to yank him for defense immediately. Yeah, he, he's one of those dudes who um, – he just seems to – I mean, a lot of the guys in this class, I feel like, took took advantage of the long offseason to work on stuff. Yeah. Um, and they've talked about it in interviews and all that. And, and he's no exception. Like the shooting was there, but the ball handling and the defense 
you know, it was a question of if depending on who you ask, for some people it was how bad is it or how how good can it be? But for most people, I feel like how bad was it? Because if those two things were like tire fires, then then you have another yet another shootery small yeah. combo guard, which are dime a dozen. And he's kind of just every every 10 months or so has chipped away at that first in the pandemic, then in his rookie year. And then again this year where now he's like, gosh, I mean, it's not saying much, but he's probably the next the Knicks best guard defender, which is, you know, it's again, it's a low bar, but it's not something I expected either. So um, that's yeah. pretty cool to see. No, I mean, these are our guys, right? IQ is your Knicks guy. And I'm a Sixers guy with Maxi. We've we've seen as much of these two That's right. as anybody else in this class. Yeah, yeah, totally. Oh, um, so one, one of the kind of themes that, you know, on these pods, I like to talk about things I've learned from, not just from individual players, but from a class. And one of the central questions I have, and I have like a half-baked article about it that maybe I'll write if I get off my ass, but like you have, you know, these guys come in, especially younger ones, with the expectation of getting better at stuff. Um, Maxi getting his shot a little more consistent, even if it's not bad. Quickly getting his handling a little bit better, even if it's not bad, right? Stuff like that. Yeah. And then, you know, the question of what exactly does it mean for a player to have outlier development in in one category is kind of interesting to me because that the answer to that really depends on the category. Um, you know, we for shooting, for example, we see guys fix their shots and go from bad to okay all the time. But it's oh, rare I mean, to see guys Jonas go Valanciunas from, is the best shooter. Oh my in the gosh. <laughs> Bruh, he was that was that was wild. That he was it's not he he's officially on like Gosol brother god yeah. level where it's like not pretty but not not pretty and it somehow goes in. He's going off movement and stuff now. That's just I, I saw him shoot one off a pin down on my timeline. I just kept scrolling. Like this can't be the NBA that I live in now. That Jonas Valanciunas running off pin downs. He's, I mean, fifteen million a year. That's going to be a top value contract for these two years yeah. by a lot. Um, but we digress. Um, so you have guys like uh, I'm just going to name a couple of guys in in shooting where you know a lot of people talked about okay, they need a shot to get to a certain level. Some For some of these players, like LaMelo, it's like they need a shot to get to all-star level. For some of these guys, other players, it's more like uh, Maxi, it's more like they need a shot to be like a solid rotation player. So you have guys like LaMelo, um, Anthony Edwards, Isaac Okoro, Killian Hayes, Obi Toppin, um, uh, and and Maxi, those are three guys, uh, and there's other guys, but those are three that jump out as guys who shots were shaky, and need, a lot of people tab the shooting as a swing skill. And then you had some guys who, for one reason or another, they were considered good shooters, but there were some question marks. So like Halliburton had shot like 99th percentile for like all his jump shots and from three and from catch and from here and from there and from your mama's house and wherever. And Cole Anthony shot poorly percentage wise, but his pre-college shooting numbers were like pretty much as good as you could possibly be. Um, and he took like all of his threes unassisted and stuff like that. Um, and then even guys like, uh, I-, I forgot to mention among the swing, sh- swing skill guys, like even guys like Leandro Bomaro, who like 
they're like, oh, a big point guard who defends and dribbles and has size, but like can't shoot. And now he can shoot. So like there's there's a lot of guys like that in this class. But, you know, I don't know that I would consider personally any of those guys developing a consistent shoot, a consistent three point jump shot outlier development. So I'm curious if you would. Um, outlier, definitely not. I think that I, I have two different points on that. And the first one is, despite, despite what you may have heard, shooting almost all of the guys that play in the NBA, get them to, or the non-bigs, get themselves to a level that they can shoot the ball enough that they can stay on an NBA floor as long as they have some sort of shooting indicator. You know, like, Maxi's natural touch was there. LaMelo had the volume. Like you said, Hallie hit everything. They they all showed that they were probably going to shoot the level to a, a, a level of competence, if you will. But I think it's a different different question when it comes to value that, like, sure, it's important. And I think me and you have talked about this before. It's important to hit that spot up three, space the floor, blah, blah, blah. But the to actually become a shooter and have people recognize you as a shooter, you need like a little bit of pull-up equity and you need to be able to hit stuff off movement and you need to be able to add those next levels to your game. So when I'm looking at shooting development, I think it's almost more important than like, are they going to be able to hit a catch and shoot at 35% to is what are their paths to being a weapon shooting the basketball? Like we're starting to see Maxi take those threes when guys duck under screens at the pick and roll. And like, that is an important, that's more important for his growth, that pull up three uh, out of the pick and roll than his ability to hit 35% from a spot, you know? So I think that, I think that the indicators are the indicators are there for all of those guys that we mentioned that they will be able to be passable shooters. But the question is, will they be able to develop into the kind of weapon shooters that they need to be over the next couple of years? That's a great way of putting it. And and that exact question is kind of one of the things that I learned most from this class. Um, in this class provided a lot of lessons learned by me being wrong in some cases and some being right in different respects um, on in terms of like what kind of shooting development is both likely and valuable. Um, I wasn't as worried about LaMelo's shot. A lot of people had him number one or whatever, and we're still worried about his shot, but I, I wasn't really as worried. Um, for example, because the shots he took were insane and no literally zero NBA coaches in the history of NBA coaching have had a leash long enough to let him do what he did in the NBL. So by that alone, he was going to add a couple of percentage points and mechanically, like it, it looks weird, but you know, I, I didn't think it was quite, quite, you know, the Carl Landry shot that some people made it out to be. Um, yeah. I thought the LaMelo shot thing was the biggest straw man of that whole draft cycle. Like the kid's been shooting 40 footers since he was 12. He, he had the shot versatility on the pull-up from anywhere, and his percentage is going to be bad because he took terrible shots. But like you said, in an NBA system, those terrible shots aren't going to be in his diet quite as often. And I, I know you had Melo 1, I believe. I had LaMelo 1, and I thought the 
one of the most ridiculous things the whole year was like Lamelo was one, but there are 14 guys in the next draft that would go over Lamelo. I had Lamelo one and in a tier by himself. And Anthony Edwards has obviously been great uh, in his first year and a half too, but I wouldn't change Lamelo one and in a tier by himself even now. I, I think that was, I got things right in this class. I got things wrong in this class for sure. <laughs> but Lamelo one is one that I haven't regretted for a second since. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, I did have him. I, I don't remember how I teared it up, but I definitely had him one. Ant-Man was another one where, like, I was kind of scared to positively project his shooting, but it looked good to me. Yeah. And he was one of the cases that um, it did make me trust my mechanical eval a little bit. Um, it, Honestly, it, I, it, I trust your mechanical eval more than I trust mine. <laughs> I I try to I I post them somewhere on the, I have a thread somewhere where I keep track of it and I, and I try to go back for it and there's certainly guys including in this class that I screw up but uh, I had that one Killian I thought would be better faster but I actually think his shot every year there ever there's some someone who shot like changes for the worse yeah. and I I actually don't think he's shooting the same I think he's shooting a little bit different so I mean he's got a lot of things he, like there's other reasons I was probably too high on him, but to me, given that he depends on finesse in a lot of ways, on offense anyway, um, that jumper regressing was a bit of a death knell. So, like, Would it surprise I, you to hear that Killian Hayes is first on the Pistons in three-point percentage? That would absolutely surprise me. But then again, I have Cade and Sadiq yeah. Bey on my fantasy teams, and every <laughs> other day it's like three for 15. So, like... <laughs> Low bar to cross, but he is at, at a whopping thirty six point eight percent. He's that's leading solid, the best. Yeah, that's solid. That's I retract my slander. Then good, you know, maybe I gotta run that footage back and see if he's uh, doing his thing out here. Because um, I, I Killian's a weird. He's a weird dude. Every he take he's the only dude in the NBA who takes what I joking but not really joking call catch and shoot sidestep threes. Like that's how he's comfortable. Like in yeah. in in his team in Europe, he took more. Uh, sidestep and step back threes than he did threes that were not that way in that one season because I remember I counted them all and like he'll catch it and then take a little hop because he's comfortable and I mean I get it but like some, sometimes I just wonder man he, he's just a he's just an odd player um, <laughs> uh, but another guy I wanted to talk about there's a couple guys I want to touch on regarding shooting and and that question you posed about like not just ca- being a catch and shoot shooter, but what's the threshold beyond that, beyond catch and shoot stationary 36%. Um, one is Halliburton who we mentioned who shot like 40, whatever percent. And we knew he'd be good off the catch. Didn't really relocate a ton, but the big surprise his rookie year was he showed that he was a proficient off the bounce shooter. Um, he took, I think more threes off the bounce than he did off the catch, or it was like 50, 50. It was, it was some surprising split and he made them like high thirties. Uh, I want to say, and that really made me go back and rethink um, about like shooting development and the role that connecting skills play in that and ball handling mm-hmm. in particular. Cause he wasn't some, you know, he wasn't hot sauce out here, but he was still, playing like a guard who could handle the ball sometimes. So it's not like he was coming into the league with shitty handle. He just had shitty handle for a theoretical, like 
ball dominant initiator, which is not what he was in Sacramento. Fortunately, he wasn't cast into that role. He was in a connector role, which is more appropriate. And then to me, I'm like, okay, so if the question isn't, can he become a good enough ball handler to shoot off the dribble? It's more, can he be a good enough ball handler to go from dribbling the ball to shooting his already really good stationary shot? And that's, I felt like that was a, easier thing to ask of somebody who's a decent ball handler. So now I look at guys coming into the league who are non ball dominators. And I'm like, all right, is their handle okay? Or is it shitty? Because if it's okay, then there's a chance they can develop. There's a higher chance than I might've previously thought that they can develop off the dribble shooting. Franz Wagner says, hello. (laughs) Yeah. I knew there was going to have to be a Franz reference in here. But <laughs> but to your point, I think that, and I'm going to keep going back to Maxi because he's the one developing it right now. Yeah. There are, there are only 10, 12, 15 guys in the league that are shooting pull-up jumpers in isolation consistently. Shooting pull-up jumpers in isolation. Right. Shooting pull-up jumpers when guys are going over screens because they're just that good at it, you know? The the threshold for a guy like Hallie who is in that connector role is more like, can you punish them for going under screens? Mm -hmm. Because like we, I think the evaluation on him pre-draft was he doesn't have the handle to consistently get downhill, right? He's not going to put intense ball pressure on the rim. And he's definitely not going to put intense ball pressure on the rim. If guys are going under in the pick and roll. Like, he's good enough. If you go over, he's going to make you pay. He's going to get a paint touch and make something happen. Great vision. But if guys go under in the pick and roll, he doesn't necessarily have that handle or creativity to do anything with the pick and roll. So it's just like, hit it when they go under, you know? Can you hit that pull-up three? Can you punish teams for trying to play to your strengths and just like kind of keep your hand balanced, right? So you can't just go under every time and kind of cut off his path to the rim. Now you have to, like, you you do have to think about Hallie pulling up in the pick and roll. And even if you still go under the screen, you, you have to go under it a little bit tighter. You can't just Ben Simmons it. So I, I think it's, he pulls up enough to, uh, enough for what he needs to do on the basketball court. Yeah, that's a, that's a great way of thinking about it. I think the more we can begin to like break down what kind of three-pointers do they need, then it becomes easier to answer the question of what kind of player development do they need to get there instead yeah. of pretending it's all kind of similar, like role, the roles matter. And Cole Anthony is an example of the opposite, right? Where yes. um, we all had questions about him i don't even want to look at what i dropped him it was probably something very disrespectful towards the end of the first round baby and you know i one thing i did know i was like oh he's gonna not be great but he's still gonna shoot well it's just all the other stuff but like the guy was okay it's like okay prez like so you concur that he's gonna shoot well and you acknowledge that his handle's really good so the floor of like Ish Smith is basically there. I mean, Ish Smith is a lot faster and a worse shooter, but like useful backup point guard is what I'm trying to yeah, say. Yeah. And the ceiling, if there can be some basic passes or some slight finishing improvement or just, you know, like 
honestly, like the way he's succeeded this year, it's like if if we're just being honest, it's because he's made a ton of hard shots. He's I think after Steph, he's like leading the league in pull up shooting or something like that or was for a while. And it's like you don't expect any you don't I, I don't I don't like projecting anybody to lead the league in anything or come close. But if there's a guy who projects to be a hard shot shooter, it would probably be a good shooter like Cole Anthony. So like things like that, that are, in retrospect seem kind of obvious, but I struggle with seeing like, well, like did you miss the mark by a ton there or only by a little bit? I, I don't really know. So I'm curious how you kind of view Cole's development. Yeah, I ha- I had to so just for background, I ended up with Cole five on my final board. Ooh. I was a big Cole Anthony guy. And take your victory lap. <laughs> and a lot of it, you remember the space and gravity stuff that I, I throw out there every once in a while. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The spacing and gravity chart for that UNC team was to this day the single worst <laughs> space team that I have ever seen in my whole entire life. I've been doing and it listen, for four years. CJ, yeah, CJ tracks this stuff. This isn't like yeah. anecdotally. Like this no, is for no. all the like a lot of D one teams for several years. Yeah, yeah. Like literally as bad as it could get. Like Cade's Oklahoma State team was significantly more like outside of Cade was significantly more spaced than Cole Anthony's UNC team. It was just ridiculous. And he was coming off injury. And I, this was the first year that I really started to take a context, uh, to really consider context in player development, right? Because things are not equal. All of these guys are not on equal playing fields. And it allowed me to kind of brush off a lot of the college sample because he he was driving into paint with four guys in it, like four defenders in the paint at all times because no one on UNC can shoot. And he was coming off the injury. So I had a little bit of concern about the age, the age and just ended up burying it and trusting the pre-college sample. And I think it goes to show that because Cole could have still absolutely missed, like he's a small volume dependent point guard. Like there are places that he gets drafted to that are at Orlando with all of the ball handling reps that came open these last couple of years where he just doesn't, he never gets the trust of his coach and he doesn't turn into Cole Anthony. So there are absolutely routes where he misses, but I think you can bet on guys like that, that have shown it at the high school level. If their college context is as bad as his was. So that was kind of what I had behind it. And now it's great to see him getting back to a little bit of that high school Cole Anthony, where he was one of the best AAU circuit guys that have been around the last couple of years. Some of my favorite things to cite statistically with Cole um, are his, how often he was assisted in the NBA and in college that really get to that. Um, and and I've looked at these stats enough for a couple of years now that I can see the numbers and know what what that means and and i'll explain in a sec for people who aren't on hoopmath.com every other day like me so uh at unc in his one year he had eight percent of his shots assisted at the rim and four percent of his two-point jumpers assisted and 53 percent of his three-pointers assisted all of those are for a ball handling guard even for a ball handling guard all of those are like like comically low, like the type of thing where if you if we were to plot that out on a graph versus other 
ball handler prospects of the last couple of years. He would just be like floating off somewhere in the graph, like by himself, even in the NBA. Um, his first year, uh, last year, uh, he had 11% of his two point shots assisted and this year 26%. So literally like orders of magnitude more shots that he gets to shoot with his great shooting assisted in the NBA, which is with an Orlando team that isn't even good where he's still mostly the only off the dribble threat, like stationary. And, you know, with apologies to Franz and RJ Hampton and, you know, the big boys, Wendell and Bamba and all that. So like, I, I you're right. I think it really, a lot of his context was so bad that it didn't compute. And, if we look at those statistical indicators, it kind of confirms what you're saying. We're like, man, we underestimated how bad it was. And then even in Orlando, his rookie year, like, is a lot different than it was this year in terms of playing with bigs who can shoot and guys who make decisions quickly and can shoot like Franz and Wendell compared to who he was playing with last year. So this is the first year where he's had basically a not shitty context. And yes, he's older, but... I, I don't think it's a coincidence that uh, he's flourishing now. Um, some of the shit is going to come down, like him Absolutely. shooting 63% from 10 to 16 feet, but some of it is not. Like he's only shooting 36% from three, and he could probably, that could probably go up. So, like, what the, f- like, this is, it, it's just, you know, now, now I like always, because of Cole Anthony, I'm always checking Denny Paul Handler, those assisted numbers, because, I'm like, I'm not going to let that burn me again. So thank you, Cole Anthony, for that uh, life lesson or scouting lesson or whatever. Um, Another guy I wanted to talk about regarding shooting development, oddly, is Devin Vassell. Um, I got into a couple of debates with folks over just how good of a shooter he was um, that draft cycle. And one of the question marks that... um, that people had that I suspect you may not have had given how you approach Cole Anthony is he shot really good percentages in his two years, um, over 40%. But compared to other like quote unquote shooters, he actually didn't shoot that many threes, like the rate at which I didn't use threes per a hundred back then, but like looking at it now, it wasn't that high. And, um, I don't have it in front of me, but it wasn't that high. And, some people were like, well, like, because he doesn't, you know, it's mostly stationary threes and not really off the dribble and not really off movement, and he doesn't take that volume. He's a he's only an okay shooter, and I kind of disagreed with that, even though I didn't really have the evidence. I tried to compile the evidence to show that, like, three-point rate could change a lot for guys like him, but it, I just kind of quit. I don't have the follow-through to go through with these crazy projects like you do, so I just gave up. And... um he was one of those guys where like, it was very obvious, like, and now he came to the NBA and surprise, he's a good shooter shooting a lot more threes. And like, now we take it, we kind of take it. It's like as known fact, almost like, yeah, of course, you know, if guys go to a, from a college team that doesn't shoot that many threes to an NBA team, that's fucking run and gun, then that'll impact how many threes they shoot. It's, of course, it's not a static thing, but like, I was wondering if you, if you thought about that at all back when we were covering this year. Yeah, Vassell was a guy for uh, one reason or another. I ended up watching a ton of film on. I loved that FSU team. I ended up with Pat Williams. Hold on, hold on. 
ended up with Pat Williams four on my board and Vassell seven. They were like wing nice. gods. Loved both of them. <laughs> and I was never worried about his shot at all, really, for a couple different reasons. First of all, he shot 42% from three on 168 three-point attempts over his freshman and sophomore year. That's like, I don't know if you know this, really good. Like that, that's, <laughs> It's pretty impressive. And on top of that, he his volume was down his sophomore year. He only shot five threes per 40, down from seven threes per 40 his freshman year. He shot 41, 42% both years. But he also, he had that off-the-dribble shooting thing. And they didn't yeah, always come midi. by threes. Yeah, mm-hmm. that off-the-dribble midi is a beautiful shooting uh, indicator, if we're talking about indicators. Um, that's a shot that typically gets taken out of a player a player's repertoire in the NBA, especially a off-ball wing prospect like Vassell was. But it's a great, great sign that he has that shooting touch off the dribble in a, in a difficult spot, always contested because that, that's just the nature of the shot. So between the percentages that he put up, the volume, which I thought was fine, and the amount of long twos and the quality he shot on those long twos, I was never worried about him from three. Yeah, looking at his college profile now, like again, this is this is why I use threes per hundred now. Back then, I used, um, you know, in, I used threes per game, like a lot of people. And I, at FSU, he never played a lot of minutes. They ran like fifteen guy rotations, and yeah. his sophomore year, he ran twenty nine minutes a game and put three and a half up per game, which isn't a ton. And even if you bump that up to like per 36 it's still not a ton but really if you look at per 100 like that's 10 per 100 in his freshman year which he played less but still a really high number that double digits is generally the back of the napkin for me for like okay taking a shit ton of threes and uh sophomore year where he got drafted it was seven which is not a lot but like in the context of the offense that they ran and the fact that he took a lot of mid-range shots, um, you know, it, it's not like a damning number. It's not like he shot like four per 100. And then you go to the NBA and his rookie year, seven per 100. And now 10 or nine. No, no, 9.2, which is a shit ton. It's basically 10. So I'm counting it as double digits. And round it up. Round it up, exactly. So um, uh, that, that, was, that was another... Um, important lesson and you know in in volume and the importance of it and some of the guys we've talked about like ant-man and lamello have also shown the importance of like you know it's almost as important as that you just put them up as make them in a lot of ways um you know and 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 this class kind of solidified that for me which is why i'm happy to see maxi taking more and of course why i like quickly taking like a zillion threes per 100 and and stuff like that. Um, and then there's some obvious guys that I did want to show love to that, like, that pretty much everyone loved. Like, um, the biggest example, obviously, is Desmond Bain, who's like, mm. draft Twitter was, we were all pretty high on him. Um, yeah. But I think even now, if we redraft, it would probably be even higher. Um, trying to find. Yeah, I remember being, thinking I was wicked I had high on Bain. I and that's like, yeah. I'd probably take him higher than that. I had him 16, and we were both too low. Which yeah, is he, that's nuts. Which isn't even like that's not even wrong, you know. Like 
if we all knew Desmond Bain was that guy, that is outlier development. Desmond Bain's doing stuff now that he did, he didn't even all, all the way do in college. He had it. He's a really really good player. I'm really happy for the kid because I liked him a lot. And shouts to at Mavs Draft on Twitter because <laughs> if there is one guy who was on Desmond Bain before everybody else, it was definitely him. Riches. Rich is always paying attention. Him and uh and uh the now not as often on Twitter Spencer Perlman who yes. ended up working with Des Bain. Um yeah. uh they were big fans and helped convert me to the church. But yeah, I, I think people now at least I don't because I don't really watch the Grizzlies because I'm old and they be playing mad late on the East Coast time. So I'll like look at his highlights and then it's just like what the fuck he's like doing like he's like driving to the rim and like throwing it high off the glass for layups and I'm like, All right, dude, like yeah. Show out. Do yeah, what you got to do. We were like Desmond Bain, late lottery, because he's the perfect connector piece, off-ball god, and he's like reinvented himself as you want the ball in his hands. It, it, I think that's just another, 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 another lesson to not put ceilings on really good players. Yes, but even older ones. Same thing with um. This is actually a perfect segue to talk about Obi. Um, so you know, people were low on him. You know what? I think. It's one of those things where people were low on him, but it, it that requires some context because I'm so for I should have probably brought this up a while ago, but listeners, CJ did a a project that started out as a tweet by me because I was too lazy to actually do the project and then he actually did it. And the idea was to just have a bunch of people submit their pre-draft rankings and then after a couple of months have the same people submit updated rankings with how they would draft the guys a couple of months later and then so on. And then just, you know, every now and then just to see how guys rankings change over time. And, um, Obi, like, you know, ESPN and these guys had him, you know, top five and for a while and then top 10, top 10, the latest, and he was player of the year and he was, must see TV and all that. And I was like, man, everybody on draft Twitter hated him, but I'm looking at these right now and I'm just looking, I'm just going to throw the numbers of some rankings I had that people had pre-draft right before the draft, 8, 12, 16, 13, 16, 10, 15, 5, 11, 19, 17, 8. Then there's a few disrespectful ones after that in the late twenties. <laughs> we won't, I won't name that. names. Right, right, right. But for the most part, it was like in the five to 15 range which at the time sounded very like oh obi Tom sucks i wouldn't take him and this was like the late lottery and you had my mother hostage or whatever <laughs> but like uh you know now like yeah he's not scoring he's not some like like all-star whatever beastly player but he's pretty fucking good and if he wasn't stuck behind julius randall he'd be getting a lot of points too and like notably but- his his defense was advertised as unfixable and salt and you know he's not he's not locking up anybody now but it's he's fine he's fine for a rotation player <laughs> let me ask you this because you watch obi Toppin significantly more than i do you're looking mm-hmm. at this board list of all the guys in this class round about on this list where would you take him in a redraft right now just that's a really good question um let me look at a couple numbers yeah, yeah, I'm pulling up the last one I had, which was from a while back earlier this year, and at that time I still, damn, I I might have dropped. I think I no, he was still 18 for me as of May last year, um, or this year rather. And I think he comes in 
better than that if we oh yeah oh yeah oh yeah 100 percent, 100 percent. like now that i know he can hang on yeah. defense and in some cases more than hang and uh i've seen you know he this this year he's playing in a context that suits his skills much more than he did last year um yeah. for a bunch of reasons and uh yeah it's mostly against bench units but like obviously ant-man is ahead of him lamello I still put Pat Will ahead of him. Um, yeah, I still put Killian ahead of him, even though I'd be a little a little sweaty while I do that. And uh, Vassell ahead of him, Halliburton ahead of him, Bain ahead of him. Um, so yeah. I don't know, somewhere around like that ten-ish area, maybe. Yeah. I had him eight pre-draft, which was a mm-hmm. little high. I think if I'm eyeballing this correctly, I'd probably have him somewhere around twelve, thirteen. Because there's a couple of the lower guys that I would probably bump over him, including Bane and Maxi. Mm. But yeah, yeah. I, I mean, people talked about Obi Toppin, and I was not high on Obi Toppin pre-draft compared to like the ESPNs of the world. I thought that that was always crazy when they were talking about as like top four, top five guy. But I didn't love the middle of that class, and looking back retrospect Hallie Max are guys that I definitely should have had over Obi but people t- the discourse around Obi at the time of the draft was like he will step on the floor and it will be a runway to the basket like the NBA has not seen since Jaleel Okafor played for the Sixers <laughs> and he's he's been fine he hasn't been great on the defensive end but he hasn't been like some terrible detriment to the defense he's a big guy he can he can move around okay um, I think there was a lot of questions about his, his not his lateral agility, but his up and down agility. Um, mm. And it, it, from what I've seen, it's still not great, but it's better than it was in college. Where he he used to like yeah. need to throw on the reverse sign and beep 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 to like back up <laughs> in the pick and roll. And now which gets to what we were saying yeah. before about like wh- what is expected or unexpected or outlier, right? Like yeah athletically it's a bit of a dark it's not a dark what's the saying a black box where it's like it's easier for us to talk about like what's outlier shooting development even now with all these nuances like we've been discussing for this whole pod but like the world of what is expected biomechanical development is that's much trickier which is why i had a coach mike g on the pod a, a while back to talk about it and uh you know, I'm going to have him back because I still got more questions for him. But like that was that's a perfect example where like he went from about as flexible as a door to flexible as a curtain, you know. Yeah. So like now now he can move around. And he, guess what? Like if he can move around a little bit, he has like a seven foot, a million wingspan and hops. So that'll get you pretty far <laughs> by itself. Yeah. No, I, I agree. Um, On, on the note of... um you know, re-ranking, there's a couple of guys where I feel like jury is still out and they were in many respects guys who had lots of fans on draft, not just on draft Twitter, but like everywhere. Um, in particular, there's Isaac Okoro, Onyeka Okongwu, um, and Poku. Those are the three uh, I really wanted to focus on here. Um, Pat Will's kind of off in his own category because he was playing pretty well before he uh, un- had the unfortunate injury. Yeah, um, I, that crushed me. I'm a big Pat Will guy, and this was the Pat Will breakout year, and I'm yeah. convinced of it. Nothing will convince me otherwise. 
And I felt extra bad because it was first the Knicks, so I felt like somehow partly responsible. And yeah. I felt bad for being like, oh, Patwell's not on the floor. I know. And <laughs> with this, for the Knicks. <laughs> this Bulls team is so interesting this year, too. I would have loved to see him in that, in that mix. Yeah, he would have. He's a perfect fit for that team, which is the other reason why it sucked. Um, but he, fortunately, he's still got a lot of good years ahead of him since he's like 12 years old. Um, yes, true. But yeah, those those other dudes, um, Okongwu, Okoro, uh, who was the other one I said? And Poku. Poku. Yeah. Um, where were you at on those three early on? My final board had Okongwu at six, Okoro at 10. And I may be blocked off draft Twitter for having Poku as low as 15 because there was a point where you weren't allowed to say Poku and also top five. They had, those right. two things had to go next to each other. Um, I I still believe in Okongwu. I, I think I probably had him a little high just by the nature of his position. But he put up some good minutes in the playoffs last year against Joel. He did. Like, he did. really good. Um Atlanta's deep. It's tough to carve out minutes on that Atlanta team, and he's he's an, another one that's rehabbing an injury, right? So he's definitely a jury still out guy. Okoro is just a weird player. <laughs> it, it's it's such a it's such an odd combination of skills, you know. Like he's a he's a good defender, but like and an awesome passer. But how often do you want the ball in his hands? Because like there's just no he's one of those guys that i would just love to see turned into a center you, you know a how center? They, yeah like how they just not a real center like how they did with um like how the warriors are messing around with kuminga just yeah, like yeah. that small ball not even actual center but like the nominal how about this i would like to see him as a screener not that's good because i was gonna say he's on the wrong team to be a center everybody on that team is way taller than he is yeah yeah no. a screener i would like to see him in the short role that kind of thing because i feel like like a Bruce lot of style yeah a lot of his skills are wasted off ball offensively and there's only so much you're like he's not andre roberson offensively but when you banish him to the corner you might as mm. well just stick Roberson there, you know, for for all that he's all the help he's going to have you there. Um, I like him, but I I had a lot of issue with his value proposition as a non shooting guy. Um, I, I, honestly, I, w- w- he might be some, somebody that's shooting better than I think. Let me look up his numbers. What are your yeah. thoughts? I was I ranked him tenth, which I felt like was low. Mm-hmm. And oh, if you well. if if I was like not afraid of shame on the internet like a loser i probably would have ranked him lower (laughs) yeah and the reason is because i i never bought the idea that you could just ratchet up someone's ability to take field goals and i felt like that was in a weird way almost like yes the jump shot was his swing skill but like we've said you can be fine like you can get good at shooting the easy threes like i'm not super worried about that but you might have to be in Okoro's uh, state. I just checked the numbers, and holy lord. What is it? He is shooting, this is just this year. Overall, he's shooting tw- a, a nice cool 27.6% from three on five attempts per 100. This year, he's shooting yeah. 21% from three on five attempts per 100. Yeah, this is what I'm saying. Like Even even assuming the the actual accuracy of the shots he does take came around, which is not 
a given, even though it's yeah. common, right? Like it's yeah. important to make that distinction. Just because it's yeah. common doesn't mean it's a given. And then, and he also doesn't have very many of those indicators that we talked about earlier. There's a reason right. why it was a big question mark pre-draft. Not like mm-hmm. Vassell, who you're like, uh, he shoots really well, but will he keep it up? Or Lamelo, who had the ridiculous shot selection that you knew was going to calm down. Like he. He didn't have those shooting indicators. He shot like sixty-seven yeah. percent from the line and twenty-eight from three. Like it's not. He was not a given. Right, and then just the ability to take those shots is—it's a combination of improving ball handling, which was worse than people I felt like wanted to acknowledge. He's a great passer, but like without good ball handling, you can't really utilize that, and you can't really score off the dribble. Um, and then just the willingness to shoot like you know they in a lot of ways Okoro and RJ Barrett are very similar in terms of they have like the same size and wingspan and similar build as like bowling ball NFL player looking dudes mm-hmm. and also can who can both pass a little bit and who can defend although Okoro is probably like another level of defender and of course definitely another level of athlete but like one of the things with RJ where I was like you can't just write it off like yeah, there was lots of concerns, and there still are, about his inefficiency, but, like, he can generate those shots, so if he can make them, the upside is there. Yeah, Okoro can make those shots, and the upside still isn't there because he might end up still shooting eight shots a game or something like that, and six of them are, like, junk ball scrum putbacks and shit like that. So, mm-hmm. like, that's kind of why, where I was low, why I was low on him, and I would probably move him down, to be honest, a good amount just because of other guys moving up. Yeah. Um, if we were redrafting Okongu to circle back to him, he's one that like, I kind of, I felt like I took out, this is going to sound stupid, but like, I felt like I took out my frustrate, like he's good. Don't get me wrong. And I still think he's very young. And like you said, the Hawks are deep, especially with Capella. So he he's going to be good. He's going to be good. There's no world. I don't think where he's bad. He's just too good at center stuff. And, but like the top five conversation and the upside conversation, <laughs> you know, we were coming off of like Bam's emergence. So everybody like loved, oh, like what if he yeah. hasn't even passing, even though there's no indicators. And then like he was the next Bam. Right. And then like, you know, like when Mobley came around, I'm like, all right, how many how many centers are the amateur draft community going to sell me on them being like a game-changing defender? First, it was Jaron Jackson being like a switchable unicorn shot-blocking monster. And now it was Okongu, who's good, but he's not breaking the game out here. And I I let that impact me. I was still I still had Mobley 3 or whatever. And I think, gun to my head, I, probably, I mean, I would definitely have him 2 now. But like, forget I the had, number. Just in terms of describing him, like I didn't... Yeah. I, I didn't appreciate what what differed what how he differed on defense from those two guys. But Okongu was one of those guys where I was like in my head I was like, really? Like he had so many great statistical indicators too, but and I ended up ranking him fourth pre draft, but I don't know. That's one where like if you read a qualitative narrative description of what I thought of him, you would not be like, fourth pick. Yeah. yeah that's fair. I, I... I, I thought that he was good. I probably bought a little bit too much into the BAM hype. I don't think I ever really had him in the top five, but six is pretty close. I think that speaks more to I, – I, I never loved – Patrick Williams made four on my board, 
because I was so uncomfortable with everybody outside of the top three. I think that th this that was like an area where I could have, I loved Pat Will and I think people might forget a little bit because he ended up going for, but the mm -hmm. week or two leading up to the draft, he was like eight, nine, 10, 11, 12 on those boards mm -hmm. and, or lower. And I was like, you know what? Let me just throw a player up there. Not throw, yeah. you know what I'm saying? That I believe in. A guy, like he was my friends last year, a guy that I believe in in Pat Will. So Onyeka at six is like, he could have also been 10. It was all kind of one tier to me. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. I, I do hear what you're saying about, and that the BAM thing probably did go a little far. I don't want my name associated with any of your <laughs> Evan Mobley thoughts, though. Yes. I had him, I did have him too, but I had, he, I, he was closer to Cade than he was to Green for me. I'll yeah. Big yeah, big L for Prez there. And speaking of big L's for Prez, I, <laughs> as much as I want to avoid talking about it, I am obligated to talk about something which I still don't understand. What exactly happened? which is my son forever, Grant Riller, who, if you look at the pre-draft rankings on CJ's project, I'm going to redo all the rankings that people had for Grant Riller that were not prized. 21, 22, 15, 19, 28, 18, second round, 13, 15, 16, second round, seven. Who is, who is this who is seven? Will. Oh, that explains it. Draft um, was real high on Riller. Draft Twitter was high on him, but there was Will and me who had him in the top ten, and like that was it. Um, yeah. Will is uh, Will Morris on Twitter for the for those who don't follow him. Um, another great follow. And the first, I'll tell you when I realized I might be in trouble. <laughs> there, it was before the se his rookie season even started, and even and after. No, this was actually before the draft. Um, he dropped. Allegedly, combination of uh, knee injuries and just his game, people not being super fans of it. I have a friend of a friend who works for an NBA front office, and he was joking that like Grant Riller would be great for like the you know the Delaware eighty seveners or whatever the hell they're called, or you know like a G League player stuff like that. And it's funny because he's actually on the Delaware eighty sevenners right now. Oh no shit! I just made yeah. that up. That's crazy. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, I guess that makes sense. Yeah, because Philly signed him. That's right. And yeah. um, and yeah, it, it, like his stats were so off the chart, and his game was, you know, like it had bench guard at the very least written all over it to me. But it, it's not how it unfolded. And um, I, I don't know. It, I, I, I guess the 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 defensive threshold was was too bad. But the main thing, this is a bit like reading tea leaves but again before the draft they you know there's videos of pre-draft interviews and workouts and they interviewed grant riller and m mind you he's top 10 in my book yeah dominated teams he played against for four years and they asked him like who does who is he modeling his game at what does he i forget the exact question something along the lines of like who do you model your game at what, what kind of role do you think you can play in the nba and he gave the most timid, whack answer I'd ever heard where he was talking about like, oh, I think I could be a he's like, I think I can be a, a rotation player, a solid bench player. You know, I think like the highest praise he gave himself was like Dennis Schroeder, who I hate. And everything else was like 
<laughs> more lowly descriptions than that even and i was like this motherfucker does not even believe in himself and you, you believe like in big... grant riller more than grant yes. riller believed in grant. <laughs> yes yes and it and it's crazy because like I, it sounds like i'm being harsh but like all these guys you have to be borderline delusional in terms of your confidence to really kick ass in the nba like because everybody has been the best player they've seen 99% of the time they've had a basketball court up until they go in the NBA. Even guys who weren't the number one pick are still probably one of the best players on the court in most of their college games, unless they are on like a Kentucky team with like four other NBA players. So like my guy, Grant Riller, you were the best player on your court most of the time with shitty teammates. And and you're talking about like, Oh, I'll be happy if I'm in the league. He said some (laughs) shit like that. And I was like, oh, fuck me. Like, this is why you this is why scouts do interviews and front offices do interviews and stuff like that. And I, I don't know if that's the whole reason why he, he, he hasn't really broke through as an NBA player or part of it or what. But uh, Alfred Prez, somewhat unexplained mystery. But there it is. So people don't think I'm dodging it when this comes out. Fair enough. I I and I ended up with Riller at 21, um, which. I, looking back, was too high on. That's a mistake of mine. Not even like an evaluation mistake. I just got I got a little caught up in the draft Twitter bullshit with Riller. He, he's fine. But my whole thing was just like, if I looked back on Grant Riller's tape with fresh eyes, which I did because I, I, that, was a mis- that was a mistake that I was actually upset with myself with. I, I think he's just like a, a like a, quadruple a guard a bench guard he may be a backup point guard may not be a backup point guard but talk about a dime a dozen archetype like there's 12 grant rillers and i'm mad i'm more upset at myself for grant riller at 21 than a lot of the other stupid mistakes i made in this class that's a great point because like that archetype is actually extremely it, it, it it's it's really competitive and it's not at the same time that's why i still struggle with it because like you look at the I've been thinking a lot about backup point cards because of the Knicks, right? Like we yeah. just banished Kemba. And the reason is because our two backup point guards are basically starting caliber point guards and quickly and Derek Rose and Alec Burks, who's the erstwhile temporary or not temporary point guard. I don't care what you want to call him, but he's really good. So yeah. like there's that. And then, you know, there's lots of, you know, Orlando is a perfect example. They're not even good. And they have like Mark Helfels and Cole Anthony duking it out in theory when healthy yeah um you know the pacers are not doing well and they have tj mcconnell for who all his flaws is still a hooper and you know then you have teams you know like the heat have gabe vincent as their backup although i guess harrow is really their backup point guard so there's ways around it now teams are putting guys like harrow and alec burks into point guard roles so like yeah i I guess it's just a deep it's a deep position like i i think that the the dying breed in the NBA is backup scoring guards, microwave guard, backup point guard. Yeah. Like for everything that Grant Riller can do, there's like 10 more guys in the, like Carlick Jones is a baller and he's like made to be the best guard in the G league for the next 12 years, but he could easily be the third, fourth guard on an NBA team. If it were 10 years ago and that were still a thing, but so much of the ball handling duties in real lineups, bench lineups, just goes to the best player on the floor nowadays, that that backup guard position is so much more important than just like 
can dr- be, is the smallest person on the floor and can score. You know, yeah. Like it, even it, Saban almost, Lee, who's like yeah. the third or fourth guard or whatever on the Pistons, I, he literally averaged forty points in the G League in three games. So like, yeah. <laughs> it's crazy. You're right. That's a great point. It's a great way of looking at it. It's not because in my head I was like, yeah, there's some big initiators, but it's more than that because it's like the Knicks are a perfect example. Like, yes, Julius is really the engine. But even beyond Julius, is there's guys like Burks who can also handle a lot of it, and R.J. Barrett even. So like, yeah. it, there's, it's there's not, no automatic. You don't automatically get those ball handler duties anymore. For yeah, being short, <laughs> exactly. It's not college where you like need a point guard on the floor to beat Bob Huggins's press. You know, it's just it's like <laughs> right. it's, it's it's in the half court offense in transition offense. The the best player is handling a lot of the ball handling duties and you don't necessarily need the small guy on the floor to quote unquote, get you into your offense. In my opinion, anyway, see people, this is why you need to follow CJ. Look at this life lesson that I just learned from him about my, <laughs> uh, my still my forever son, Grant Riller. I don't care. I'm still rooting for him forever. Um, we're for already, <laughs> we're already over the hour mark. So I, I want to just end with another, are there, can you give me, well, let me do two questions. The first question is, is there anybody we haven't talked about who you just, it, and it doesn't have to be one guy. It could be one or two guys if you want. Is there anybody you want to talk about who to you is just fascinating for one reason or another, like as a prospect or their early career arc or why they were viewed this way or that way? Um. Yeah, let me run through. Uh, first of all, we didn't touch on Poku. Um, we mentioned- Oh, shit. Yeah, let's do that. Let's do that. Poku, um, who- as of right now, this year has a sub 40 true shooting percentage in Oklahoma City, which is tough to do. It's one of those things with Poku where, like, I'm seeing people get antsy and I'm not even mad at them about, like, all right, when does he cross the age threshold where the ball has to go into the hoop? Yeah. Because he was so young for his class that, like, mm-hmm. even his rookie year, I was like, he's basically having his, like, freshman college year on a ridiculous tanking Thunder team. Absolutely. And now. Now this year, which yeah, exactly, which is like fair. And now this year, they're they're not tanking, tanking, but they still suck. And I'm like, okay, has there been development? Is he still? Is he 19 yet? I don't. I don't even know if he is 19 yet. Let me see. Um, he is. He's 19. Um, and he's gonna turn. He's just about to be 20. In like, he's just about to be 20, right? So like, off. I'm like, damn, yeah. like. I, I feel like I feel like it's fair game to be a hater now. And I mean I had him, Jesus, I think I had him like something crazy. I had him shit, where is it? Poku. I had him eighth. I thought it was yeah. higher. Shit. That <laughs> just shows you that I thought I, he was higher. I um, had him fifteen and not even in like a disrespectful way, because I love right. I told everyone that you're lit. Like every podcast I was on. If you want to just enjoy a half an hour, just go watch poker on youtube it's a great time he's a blast but there were there are just so so many outcomes where he is not some basketball god like he was in those grainy youtube videos i think like we talked about uh okongwu everybody was trying to hit the next bam i think poku was everybody trying to hit the next Giannis, and Mm. that's fair but if we're going to talk about outlier development Giannis's strength and all of his Giannis is outlier development, and just because Poku is funky and cool looking, he's still he's still an interesting prospect, and he deserved to be a first round pick, without a doubt. But you can't 
you you can't assign Giannis's development to Poku the prospect and just have that be gospel, you know. One thing that I'm curious about, because like I, I definitely agree with you, and the reason I had him high was not necessarily because of oh yeah some kind of delusional Giannis thing, which I did hear people speak about, but like you know, there were certain things that I thought were lower hanging fruit. Strength being one of them, not that he was going to get jacked, but just like he was going to become some passable level of skinny, um, yeah. kind of like what happened to Kristaps. And, um, you know, we talked about LaMelo uh, getting away with crazy stuff, crazy shot attempts in the NBL that no coach would let him get away with in the NBA. But Poku still, you know, his shots weren't as crazy as LaMelo's, but they were still a little crazy. And he pretty much still yeah. gets away with those, which, like, that's part of the reason he's, uh, I mean, the sample is too small to really do anything with his three point shooting this year, 10 for 50, whatever, 20% bad number, but 50 is not a lot. And, but you, you watch the shots and he still takes some wild fucking shots, like quick trigger moving threes. And, and part of that is the kind of threes that you want him taking to develop. So I'm not even saying like, I don't even know if he should dial down the difficulty or not, but like, they got to think about that. And and I don't I don't really know. I don't even know where I stand. Like, at some point, I'm going to do the re-rank for your exercise. And I'm just going to, like, sit there for half an hour and just, like, think about this because I don't know what to do. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I, like, should I drop him? Was I – or the low-hanging fruits not so low-hanging? I have no idea. I think that if you were high on Poku pre-draft, even the most optimistic Poku fan could not think that he would make an impact in the NBA in his first year and a half. Right. Realistically, I think I think that and a lot of the reason I was lower on him pre-draft is because remember, this is before we knew he was going to Oklahoma City. Mm, NBA teams are notoriously not patient with prospects. And he was going he was always going to be so bad over his first two years that there Mm. is almost no other team he could have gone to that would have given him a long enough leash to get better. Oklahoma City was the best place he could have possibly gone. And I, if they're willing to let him work it out another two years, there's absolutely the chance that he finally channels some of that raw basketball gift into something helpful and productive. But he's two years away from being two years away. I just, it, Oklahoma City is the only team that would wait this out, and they may, and I hope for his sake and for all of our sakes that they do. And he turns into a guy because the NBA is a better place with him in it. But if I had him 15 before, I, I don't think I would go any higher than that with him now. I want to look up his G League stats out of curiosity. Um, damn it, while, while you do that, I'll I'll just run through this list and see if there's anyone else I have. Here we go. Here. His G League his G League stats are like basically the same as his NBA stats in 12 games, 25 minutes a game, 30 percent from the field 27 percent from three again only 12 games but like not great not great so so yeah i mean if anything i'll drop him solely because there's lots of people i have to move up so that kind of makes it easier to me yeah where i can say well there's other people who's better and he's still an upside play so i'm not going to drop him into the second round or anything like that so for sure yeah um other than the one guy Oh, good, good. No, I was going to say, for my one guy that I, I that I want to pick, um, I, I wanted to talk a little bit, just like one minute, about Balmaro, who 
a lot of people fell in love with him. Um, his variance, if you look at the pre-draft rankings on your prospect, a lot of guys had him second round. Other guys had him fourteenth, fifteenth, like end of lottery or uh, middle yeah. of the second, middle of the first round. And you know, I, I got. He's an example, I think, of outlier shooting development. That's why I want to bring it up. Mm-hmm. I, I think he he had the size. He was a great defender. He you know could tighten up the handle, but he ran point guard at various points in his young career and was a great passer. So like he had a lot of point guard things going for him, including size, which matters a lot in the NBA. But to me, as a guy whose shot looked kind of janky, um. That kind of closed off. To me, it was really a swing skill in terms of closing off not just his route to be a point guard, but his route to be a connector as somebody who was tall and good at defense. Yeah. And then I remember just like reading the year after, like that he was randomly shooting like off the dribble and shooting mid range shots at a very good rate in Europe. And I, I looked at the video and the shot looked a lot better and um, it was not a hitch anymore. And the numbers were there and his pull-up shooting numbers were good in a small sample. And that's continued this year, both in the NBA and in the G league. And I'm like, man, like anybody who like the Timberwolves are so fortunate to have, like, he still, he still very much needs a lot of seasoning, but like they have a prospect who's a six foot six point guard and or connector who can shoot and play D that's like a fail safe prospect yeah. right there regardless of whether he becomes a starter or a rotation player like that's that's a big that's that's big and he's not just a like a fake shooter like oh catch and shoot while he doesn't have the ball but the whole point is you want him to have the ball so like what's the point like no he can actually if you go under he can take a shot with confidence and stuff like that so i mean i i this I, there's not really much of a lesson learned here other than like we've talked a lot about how different things that we thought were outlier development were not outlier development. I actually yeah. think with Leandro it was, and yeah. uh, the Knicks technically drafted him. Little but it's, but it's okay. So because yeah. we got quickly and yeah. Obi, who I love, so it's okay. Nice. Um, yeah, I don't have too much more to add. I think I'm just gonna quick one minute run through this list. Um, Jaden McDaniel's 17. I feel good oh, about that. That's great. That's great because I totally. I'm not going to front every year. I don't do my homework on all the guys. And he was one of the guys who I just didn't fucking watch enough. Yeah. Like, like the equivalent of handing in my homework in blank. So yeah. good job for, for not doing that. Um, can you talk a little bit about that, about what made him jump out to you? Cause yeah. I received that question and I don't have an answer. He was, he was a hype fished prospect coming in for like all the wrong reasons, like five star. And then he didn't score well which, I mean, if you watch Jaden McDaniels now, you know it's not his game. But he was a phenomenal defender uh, in his one year at Washington. And I believed in the shot eventually coming around, but mostly it was just defense. Um, A lot of it just got chalked up to went to Washington, played in zone, you know. But he, you could see uh, on the, the defensive film that the instincts were there. And he was a guy, he was one of the guys I really believed in coming into the draft, not as any sort of star, but as a really valuable role player. And I don't want to leave this pod without taking my lumps and saying, I'm sorry to the city of Detroit, because I ranked Sadiq Bay 25 
and Isaiah Stewart in the unspeakable nethers, something like 56. And I, as far as lessons go, um, it, this may be me being stubborn and you can let me know. Sadiq is one thing. I think just always believe in Villanova guys, but Isaiah Stewart, when the next offensive first energy undersized big comes around, I'm probably going to miss on him too. It's just not, if I'm going to miss, those are the kind of guys I'm going to miss on. And obviously he's one of those outlier maniacs that we were talking about earlier that just wants it more than absolutely everybody else. But it's, I, I don't know. Talk me through that one. I don't know where I had Stewart. Uh, well, he's he's the same school as McDaniel, so you probably didn't see much of him. Yeah. Oh, well, there you go. Yeah. I do. The only thing, yeah, I'm looking now. I had him not in my first round. I will take a minor victory lap about because some reports came out right before the draft that the Knicks were interested in him. Mm-hmm. So I was like, let me see who the guy is since I haven't watched any of either of these dudes. And I remember being like, wow, his jump shot looks nice. And then he shot decently in his yeah. first year. And now they're like not letting him shoot, which is kind of annoying, but whatever. Mm-hmm. So uh, had I watched him, it's possible I would have been higher on him, but we will never know. Um, <laughs> Bay is one of those guys who uh, I ended up having him at the very end of the first round, but I would have had him higher if I wasn't like a fucking loser who was just like afraid of bucking the consensus on a player who was poo-pooed by a lot of draft Twitter. Because to me, I distinctly remember, like, beyond just Villanova always being good and him being a part of that, like, him being like, all right, I super buy his shot as very splashy. And, you know, some people were like, Bay sucks at defense. And I don't think he's amazing, but I didn't think he sucked at defense. I remember being like, this guy is defending multiple positions. And for a a thick boy, he's pretty quick on his feet. And then on top of that... I remember watching Villanova and being like, this guy's like running a few pick and rolls and he's like doing his thing out here. He's not like pre-deciding. He's, he can shoot off of it. He can pass a little bit. And I was like, what, what the fuck is everybody so mad at this guy for? And I, I don't know if it's because Villanova was just whomping everyone's favorite teams or whatever, but like, yeah, I, I remember being like, man, maybe, maybe I'm misevaluating his defense and you know, he's not going to get the touches to really pass anyway. So like, I didn't give him his due as a potential connector wing. And yeah. uh, he checked a lot of those boxes, like effort on defense, size, rebounding, shooting, and could do a couple of show-me passes, could put it on the floor once if you go under the screen. Like, mm-hmm. and I, I he, He's going up in my, uh, my re-rank. Um, let me see what I... In the May, the last, the last re-rank, I had him... Damn, I only moved him up to 24, so he's going to go up a lot more this next time. But, um, yeah, that's one of those where, like, again, this is why this this is a great example. One exercise I'm trying to do this year is, um, like, I'll still have big boards and rankings and stuff, but I'm probably going to have less of that than other people. And I got this idea from a friend of the pod, Mavs Draft, um, who came up earlier. And I'm, I'm going to try to describe focus on like, yes, look at the stats and then use the stats and what you see in the video to describe what you think they are as a prospect and then use that to kind of ground truth what where you end up ranking them because maybe you rank them low because it's a deep class or whatever, but if the description of a guy sounds like someone who should be mid-lotto, then the odds are the person should be mid-lotto. And yeah. 
that's it's, it's, that's just a way, a, a way I'm going to try to avoid situations like this. So that that's kind of where I'm at with Bay. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think we've talked about everybody. Um, I will say I love Paul Reed and Isaiah Joe. I don't want to go into detail, but I had them both as first-round guys. They're Sixers, and I wouldn't feel right in my heart if I went through this whole Knicks podcast and didn't mention all the Sixers guys. Yeah, I love both of those guys, and, and you know, the Sixers got a lot of hoopers too. So I think I think both of those guys are are good right now and will continue to be good and get better. So um, they may not have the the volume yet, but uh, I need I need a uh, I need Doc to free my son Isaiah Joe and let him let him chef a little bit more. Uh, I know the competition is stiff, but um, him and Paul Reed need to be out here, especially while Ben Simmons is just fucking chilling, waiting to get traded. So uh, uh we'll nothing see. like. Ending a podcast with a Ben Simmons reference to put me in a good mood to get to bed. Yes, that puts us in the the good company of every other NBA podcast for Perfect. this season. You should title <laughs> this, Where Will Ben Simmons End Up? It'll get a ton of uh, traction. You know, we joke, but I don't have many listeners, so I'm not above doing cheap shit to get <laughs> listeners, so I might just do it. Um, but yeah, CJ, thanks for, for joining. I didn't expect this to go this long, so thank you for uh hanging with me and 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 going through this in depth uh, i i had a ball and uh, i hope you did too do you want to tell folks again where they can find you and if you got anything you want to draw attention to anything cool you got coming out yeah well first of all just thanks for having me on sorry i probably contributed to it running a bit long i ramble a little bit but past that um Follow the Stepian guys. Follow the Roll Call Sports guys. That's my website. We have a lot of great college basketball analysis there. Um, I am going to have a next update of the project that you were talking about earlier with the redraft coming out in the next month. So I guess keep an eye out for that. And beyond that, just follow me on Twitter at CJ Marchesani. There's a big pinned list of all of the dumb, stupid basketball projects I've done over the past year uh, in my pinned tweet. So if you're interested in anything that we talked about today, you will more than likely find it there. All right. You heard the man. Give him a follow and check out his stuff. I'm going to uh, wrap us up here so I can go watch James Harden apparently come close to giving us a 40 piece and waking up from the dead and pretending it's 2016 again, which is really annoying. So uh, <laughs> matter of fact, I'm not even going to watch the game. I'm going to I'm going to run it back afterwards so I can watch it without being stressed. I'm going to go play video games or something and then nothing like a back uh, on nothing like a game against the Knicks to really wake up a player. I know. I'm going to I'm going to just turn I'm going to let my basketball today be Warriors Phoenix so I can just have like <laughs> basketball happiness and bliss and not worry about all the stressful Knicks related aspects of fandom just for one night. Do it. All right. That's the game plan. Everybody listening, thank you for hanging with us. I hope you too have a, a stress-free evening filled with basketball bliss and hopefully Knicks wins whether today versus the Nets or versus whoever the hell we're playing after that. Peace, y'all. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? 
That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.